Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Australian novelist James Bradley. James came into the Faber offices recently to talk to me about his latest novel, The Resurrectionist, a gothic chiller set amid the world of the anatomists and the black market trade of the body snatchers in early 19th century London. The Guardian praised the book for catching the gore of the mortuary slab and the seedy high of the opium den. I asked James what the starting point for the book was. The book really began in two things. One was the story of Birkin Hare, who smothered 16 people and sold their bodies to Robert Knox in Edinburgh in the late 1820s. And I remember reading that story and being struck by the dreadfulness of it. I mean, it seemed to me to be both a story very much of its time, of that kind of 19th century industrial city, the the claustrophobia of that city, the, the poverty of that city, and the brutality of that, that world. But also a weirdly contemporary story, you know, a story about murder for profit, about kind of turning people into things to be bought and sold, killed, disposed of. It seemed to be a very kind of 20th century story at another level. And I also knew the minute I heard it, I wanted to write about it. But I also... I also, I mean, books often begin in this way where you find that there's, you have a beginning and you have an end and the book's about finding your way from one to the other. And I, I had this very powerful dream one night and in the dream there was a man standing behind, beside a road in the Australian bush and it was in that bleached light you get in the Australian bush in the winter. And... I knew as I was looking at this man that he was dead, that he was a ghost or a revenant of some kind. And I also knew that somehow that man there in the Australian bush connected somehow to this story of murder for profit that I wanted to write about. I guess in many ways the book is about trying to find a way between those two moments. I and mean, oddly enough, the scene with the man didn't end up in the book, but it was in a sense the inspiration for it. And books are always about both that kind of the conscious stuff you put into them, the stuff you think they're about, and the kind of subconscious landscape that's at work in them. And I guess The Man by the Road was always the subconscious landscape of the book. One, one word that I wrote down as I was reading the book was, was economy. And it seemed to me that the economics of early 19th century Britain were very much to the fore in that everything can be bought and sold it can be a body it can be a live body it can be a dead body there's a sort of competition amongst the the resurrectionists it's got its own economic sort of supply and demand weirdly enough that was one of the things i was very interested in right from the start with the book with every book you really want to write about now you don't want to write about then and i i was very interested by this world because in a world it was a world where everything was for sale where everyone was for sale. And it seemed to me to be an amazing kind of metaphor for early 21st century, you know, liberal democracies, you know. It was an incredibly powerful kind of image in a way, a way of talking about now, about what happens when you stick medicine and commerce next to each other, when you you do those things that continue to happen now. I mean, I hope the book doesn't have many mistakes in it, but it, it doesn't try to be a historical novel in the conventional sense. You know, and it's quite a modern world that it's writing about, and the characters behave a lot of the time much more like modern characters than necessarily like people of the times. But I was very interested by... When I was doing the research, I mean, you can learn about the lives of the poor, and you can learn about the lives of the middle classes and the rich, 
But the people that it's very hard to get a sense of the lives of are the people who are kind of in between. Those people both who are sort of respectable but not quite respectable and, uh, and live in that world where you can slip so easily from one world down, you know, and I was interested by them, but also by the lives of the kind of actresses and writers and, I mean, the, I guess the kind of demimonde of, mm. of that world. I was very interested by the precariousness of it and, uh, you know, all of those people who are in the way that Gabriel, the narrator, is kind of not quite gentleman. You know, I mean, what would it be to be one of those people? Mm. And even Paul, the um, the anatomist, is a self-made man, isn't he? He's got very humble beginnings and is is on the up. And other people, as you say, sort of sometimes slide slide back down, and the wheel of fortune turns against them. And it's actually particularly interesting in terms of the the material of the book because, I mean, you had this kind of revolution that happened in medicine in the late eighteenth century, beginning of the nineteenth, where the role of the surgeon expanded, the, the job of surgery became, you know, the research that was around it began to grow and the numbers of people who became surgeons grew exponentially along with the population. But there'd always traditionally been a distinction between physicians and surgeons and physicians were gentlemen, they went to university. Surgeons were tradesmen. And their social status had risen by this stage. They were no longer barbers as well. But it was still a profession that was apprenticed and that young men, boys, went into you know, the sons of poor parsons, you know, merchants' kids, the sons of rich tradesmen, because it was a way to kind of achieve social success. And I have to say, as an Australian, you're very aware of it, because, I mean, there's a number of people, William Redfern, who was one of the kind of really significant figures in the early colony in New South Wales, you know, was a surgeon. I mean, and and they were all people often from quite humble origins who could rise and become figures within societies it it was a route to social advancement and that was incredibly interesting to me the the way that in a sense it was a trade it's also interesting i think because there is something about i mean the thing that the surgeons did that was really radical and and that began in the late 18th century was a process of looking at the body And this was quite a radical idea. I mean, they looked at the body and they said, what is happening? You know, when someone is sick, what does it look like? What is happening inside? What are the physical processes that are going on? And yet it was a physical profession, you know. So, I mean, you have all of that funny stuff about it's a trade. You work with wood. You work with bodies. And I do suspect that there is something about the process of surgeons beginning to see the body, to look at the body to get it within that medical gaze where you depersonalise it and make it into an object of scientific study, which was both about the fact that doing surgery was a dreadful process. I mean, I mean, Astley Cooper used to talk about his surgeons as victims. I mean, it was dreadful. It was done without surgery. I mean, the notion of cutting somebody's limbs off without surgery, without anaesthetic, it's a horrible notion. It must have been incredibly distressing to do as well as to have done. You know, so you have that kind of connection both with the brutalising process of it, but also with that kind of trade aspect of it. I mean, you're actually working with a body. It's a thing. I mean, it's like a lump of wood. You learn how it works. And on one hand, the surgeons are very patrician. They're men of science. They're men of rationality. And at the same time, their business is underpinned by this really grubby, illegal activity of digging up bodies and and indeed going further. And there's a sort of tacit acceptance of that, isn't there? It has to go really far before the surgeons or the surgeons' men are willing to sort of say, no, I'm not willing to accept this cadaver you've you've brought in, which is still warm. 
that was one of the things that when I began the book I was very aware of that I mean it was a world where you could see much more clearly what uneasy bedfellows medicine and profit make and I mean I think the same is true today I mean you only have to look at the way big farmer operates to see that it's true today but we, we tend not to say it to ourselves it's also interesting to me historically because when I when the book came out in Australia there's a historian in Australia who's written on this subject and she wrote a long article about the book and one of the things that she didn't like about it was she felt that I had impugned the reputation of some of the I mean there are some real people kicking around in the background of the book and I suggest that they were probably buying the bodies of from dubious origins as well and she I mean, I think she in general is rather too trusting of a number of the people that she writes about. But, you know, she felt that I'd kind of suggested something that was not right, that they wouldn't have done this. And oddly enough, I, I have a namesake. There's a historian called James Bradley. In fact, there are two historians called James Bradley, but there is a Scots one who I know a little bit, who works both in transportation to Australia, but also he's been writing about a surgeon recently and he sent me an email just a couple of weeks ago saying he's been doing research here into some materials held at the Old Bailey and he's found the trial of a man who was a resurrectionist where he just says we all know how to get bodies the surgeons know where we get them from if there's no supply they say you know how to make them in a sense he's kind of found the documents which demonstrated what I became quite clear about when I was doing the research for the book which is that we know about Burke and Hare, we know about the Vestal Green Gang, we know about the famous instances where people were murdered and their bodies were sold. But it must have been going on much, much more. They, you know, I, I don't believe that they were isolated incidents. And James, I think, has probably found a series of documents which demonstrate that they were not isolated incidents. The book is incredibly corporeal, visceral, the sense of the body as a, as a thing that can be opened and examined. Tell me how you steeled yourself and prepared yourself for writing some of those gut-drenching scenes. It's funny, when you write a book, you often don't know what's going to come out. And I remember when I went back and read the first draft of this book, I was really surprised by both how homoerotic it is, I have to say, you know, which I guess given that it's all about men and bodies, graves, mouths, you know, all this kind of very Freudian imagery probably shouldn't surprise me, but I wasn't aware of when I was writing it. I remember when I sat down to start writing it, I mean, the first page is a dissection scene, and I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, well, what happens now? And you know, what does the dissection look like? And I didn't know, so I kind of did what I normally do, which is ring up somebody I know who's a doctor and say, so dissections, how do you do them? And he said, you've got to go and look at them. And so I, I, I went and did dissection classes for a little while at one of the universities, which was a fascinating process. And I mean, it's fascinating both for watching the bodies and for watching the way people behave around them. But I became really clear very quickly that the bodies they were working with were nothing like the ones my characters would have been working with. I mean, they were drained of blood, set in formaldehyde. I mean, they're these strange kind of bloodless grey. I mean, they look exactly like cold roast pork. It is really quite disconcerting. But they didn't look like the bodies my characters would have been working with, which were straight out of the ground. They were full of blood. They were full of all of the mess that's inside bodies. And they were often on the turn as well. And so I talked to a doctor friend who introduced me to someone who ran the 
pathology department at one of the big hospitals in Sydney and for a few weeks I went and watched autopsies in the hospital which were a much more visceral and confronting experience they're not nauseating and they're not revolting but they are they are very strange I mean there's something very odd about dead bodies I mean there is a process with the body and when someone dies there's still him or her and there's a point somewhere along the line where they stop being a him or her and they become an it I mean people move from subject to object and you know you know the point where a body's become an it but when you're doing autopsies the bodies are in this strange stage where they're kind of in between they're things but they're still hims and hers and so it's quite disconcerting for that as well you mentioned this image you had at the start of the of the figure in the in the bleached light of australia and the book shifts from the very dark oppressive london of the first section to this second part and it seemed to me other transitions take place like the transition from the the sort of insistent corporeality to something that's opening on to a different vista really the G- gabriel goes from being a resurrectionist to being an artist he paints birds which are the most i suppose incorporeal of the of the corporeal creatures and i wondered if you could say something about that transition that takes place and how you how you sort of operated that pivot that, that the book sort of really turns on because some some of what some of what has occurred is left behind but inevitably some some of it goes with him it trails after him I think in a very real sense the book actually happens from the middle and I call it the middle but in fact the Australian section is more like a coda it's only about a quarter of the length and so in a sense I think it radiates out from in a sense the break between the two sections I mean I always knew right from the moment I began the book that it would end up in Australia I, I wonder actually whether for a lot of English audiences the Australian sections probably seem a bit odd and tacked on but I don't think that they are I mean I think they're absolutely intrinsic to the book and they're part of the book and they're about taking a character out of I mean as you say an intensely and insistently corporeal world and putting them into the the openness and in a, I guess at some level freedom of Australia because there was something very odd that went on with transportation Robert Hughes has a great line about Australia being a prison without walls and it was it was a prison and people got sent there to prison yet for a huge number of the people who went there it was also a kind of release and once you got there people became very rich a lot of them i mean you see that in dickens with both magwitch and micawber end up in australia and make their own even micawber makes his fortune in australia and people did become very rich. I mean, but it was also a way of kind of people left behind their class origins. I mean, a whole series of things could kind of happen in that process of going to Australia. But they also had to take with them their pasts. And I do think that Australia, like a lot of colonial societies, still suffers. I mean, I'm always a bit suspicious of psychosocial explanations, but I do think that colonial societies tend to suffer from the fact of the amnesia that they have to exist with you know i mean colonial societies are always founded upon the dispossession of the people who lived there before them 
And you need, in a sense, not to talk about that in order to maintain the idea of this as a society. And in Australia, that's actually doubled. You have this problem of the dispossession of the people who lived there and laid over it. You have the fact that the people who came there needed to kind of forget their origins. You know, they needed to forget that they were convicts. So the whole country is kind of built around a kind of forgetting. Forgetting is at one level necessary, but then also needs to be gotten past because I mean, the, the process of that forgetting, I think, is very damaging to societies over time. If you deny the origins of the society, eventually you start to deny a whole series of things that shouldn't be denied. And so I wanted to write about that process, but I also wanted to kind of get at the notion that the... I mean, this kind of medical gaze, this process of looking at bodies and turning them into objects that can be, first of all, dissected, but also bought and sold, is absolutely the same process that was in place during colonisation. The classification of the landscape, the classification of the fauna, the classification of the flora, the mapping of the landscape, the tying down of it. And I wanted to kind of get at the way that those two things are connected, the way that this kind of medical gaze, this scientific gaze at the body, and this scientific gaze which allowed, in a sense, places like Australia to be brought in and brought under control were, were part and parcel of the same thing. Classification you mentioned and classification indeed of the indigenous people was another another form of classification that, that colonists undertook, wasn't it? And I just wanted to ask you finally about a, a scene which was certainly pivotal for me. It's the first scene which listeners can hear if they if they visit the Faber website, you, you, you read the scene in which Gabriel Swift reinventing himself in Australia spies two Aboriginals in the landscape and the effect that that has on him and his other his other Western viewer. And I, I just wonder if you could say a little bit about that, because in some ways, you know, you were saying some readers might think the, the Australian scenes are tacked on, but, I, I, you know, and the, the eruption of Aboriginals into it might seem doubly so, but I, I felt to me that there's something very significant was happening in that scene, which is almost dreamlike and very still. But can you just sort of un- unpack it a little bit finally? Well, it is absolutely pivotal. And I remember I talked before about having had a dream and having seen a man standing by the side of the road. And there was something about, I know when I began the book, there was something about the kind of oppositions that were going on, you know, up, down, here, there, you know, England, Australia, life, death, black, white, that was incredibly suggestive to me. But there was also something about when the first Europeans got to Australia, a number of the Aborigines who first encountered them thought... I mean, I think it's very difficult for us to think our way back into into the heads of those people and what they must have thought was going on. I mean, I'm sure they didn't think that these people were arriving to build a city and to stay. But a lot of them also, they saw these pale people and they thought that they were the spirits of the dead returned. And in that first encounter for the Aborigines, the Europeans were the ghosts. But very quickly the process of colonisation made the Aborigines ghosts in their own country. And so I was really interested in that kind of inversion, what that might mean. Which connects also with that notion of forgetting that I was talking about, you know, about the kind of leaving behind of the past. Because I wanted to get somehow, and in a kind of elusive kind of way, at what happens to people when they forget what went on and that's what's going on with Gabriel very much in the second half is that you know he has this past that he has to leave behind but he also can't leave behind and at some level he has to find some kind of reckoning with some kind of 
accommodation with. I mean, I, I remember wanting the final scene of the book to be one where you have a moment of forgiveness and everything's okay. And I wrote it that way a number of times, but it just wouldn't work. It wasn't true, and it actually ends on a much more ambivalent and muted note, the way it ended up. And that felt right when I wrote it. I mean, this character's done dreadful things, and he really wants to put that behind him. But he's never going to be able to do that. He, he can find some accommodation with it, perhaps, but he's never going to be able to leave it behind. I was talking to James Bradley, whose novel, The Resurrectionist, is available in paperback now. Thank you for listening to this download from Faber and Faber. There are many other author interviews available on the Faber website, and you can subscribe free to a regular Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber into the search box.